church for your glory and for your goodness. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to challenge, to convict, to lead us into truth. God, to change us. And we thank you for what you're doing in this church and in this community. And Father God, I pray right now as we just pause and take a moment and remember those lives that were lost in Nepal. And God, I pray for those families and friends who lost loved ones in this catastrophic earthquake and subsequent earthquakes. God, I pray for your blessing on those who have lost loved ones. God, I pray that you would provide comfort and peace. God, I pray for those who are there, the first responders, those who are helping out, all the volunteers, God. I pray that you would be with them, that you would give them perseverance, God. And I pray most of all that this event, as so many of these events do, will ultimately lead to your glory being shown and your name being made great. God, and I pray for those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, that we would look for every opportunity, even in this tragedy, to find the silver lining of your love and your grace. We may not understand these events. We don't understand why they happen, but you do. You're the sovereign one, and I pray that you would guide us in that. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be with us today. I pray for each one of us gathered in this room that you would provide conviction and challenge and comfort and encouragement where we need those things. May my words not be mine today. May they be yours, and may you pierce our hearts and may you touch our lives, and may we respond in a way that's pleasing to you as we discuss this first thing that is on the pedestal of our lives so often and that bumps you off of the pedestal of our lives so often. Be with us now in the strong name of Jesus, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to thank you so much for being here today. For those of you I don't know, uh, my name's Todd. And uh, we are here today in week two of a series that we're uh, entitling Pedestal. We began last week with an introductory message, kind of setting the stage, if you will, for these next few weeks. And, and so today, as we come to uh, week two, not being introduction anymore, but uh, diving in, uh, I just want to kind of get you up to speed on where we've come from and where we're going. We defined last week, or we kind of discovered last week, that you and I all humans have uh, something in our lives that, that we have. There's this place in our lives, and it can be found in a variety of different areas in our lives, where we ascribe the most value or the most worship to something or someone or perhaps even some idea. And so we're describing and then it's this whole series entitled Pedestal because we all have this place in our lives where we take something that we love so much and we place it high up on a pedestal. Now this pedestal is not very high, it's shorter than I am, which means it's really short. But this pedestal right here is a pedestal that's like a column and it often will hold up something or it'll support a structure. But our pedestal is the way we're describing it. Literally is defined as something that we give worth to, that we idolize, or that we worship. Something that we give worth to, that we idolize, and that we worship. And so we're discovering in this series what are the things that are common to most everyone that will take God off the pedestal of our lives 
and it'll replace it with itself. And how we often are the ones that do the replacing of God on the pedestal of our lives and we put something else. And so we're taking a look at several different common things that you and I have that we will uh, eventually create such worth towards or such uh, idol, idolization towards or such value towards that all of a sudden we wake up one day and that is in the center of our lives rather than God. Last week we discovered the fact that um, God created you and me, uh, regardless of where you are in your faith journey, he created all of us, all of us are created um, to give worth and to give glory to him. And that's the way that God intended. But so often we take things, many things that are good for us and actually put more worth and more glory to them than we do God. And in doing so, we take God off the pedestal of our lives and we put that thing up there. And so our series is called Pedestal. And today we come to the very first thing that we take God off of the pedestal of our lives and replace it with. And today's subject is money. Please don't leave, all right? So it's money. It's all going to be fine. You can say it's going to be okay. Say it's going to be okay. Say it with me. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. All right, it's going to be all right today. I understand the, the tension and the struggle with money and how it can become a god. It can become an idol. It can become that thing that we so idolize in our life that we do everything to try to attain it. And I think that sometimes it's because we don't understand what the Bible says about the subject of money. Wow, that almost went all the way down. That would have been fun. Uh, we don't understand what the Bible says about the subject of money and how we are supposed to manage it and treat it. And while today is not an exhaustive, like, teaching on money, I mean, the Bible has, you realize the Bible has more to say about money and possessions than anything else in the Bible, even more than love. And so the Bible has so much to say about it. This isn't exhaustive. I want to give you some easy ways to prevent in the future from money or possessions or the want of money or the desire for money to replace God on the pedestal of your lives. And I think it begins with understanding the value, really, of, of what money is all about. Uh, how many of you growing up had a parent or both parents or someone in your life that said, I want to teach you the value of a dollar? Anybody get that? I think I just imitated my dad there, kind of. That was bad news. I don't want him to hear this message. But anyway, so that was often followed with, like, a long discussion, wasn't it? Are you with me? You remember those days? Like, I want to teach you the value of a dollar. And then you're like, oh, man, an hour and a half later, I don't think I really got that. But that was the way it was in my house. It's probably the way that, uh, it was in some of your, your homes. And, and I'm not sure that we really understand the value of a dollar. And so today in trying to, to understand what steps we can take to not make money our God, to not put money on the pedestal, um, we're going to discover what God's word says about money and how we should value it. And today, um, our, our idol or the thing that we put on the pedestal is being represented by this giant calculator, all right? Isn't that awesome? Yeah, so I can actually take my glasses off and, um, you know, use this calculator, which is great. So anyway, so it's being represented there by this calculator, and that's us putting money on the pedestal of our lives, making it the focal point, the thing that we worship. And I think that if I say that out loud, some of you are like, I don't worship money. I don't, I don't more highly value money than God. I don't ascribe more worth to money or possessions than I do, do God. Um, I would suggest to you that there's probably a time in your life or maybe there will be a time in your life where you'll do that. It may be in ways that you don't even see coming. It may be in ways that you're doing now. It may be in ways that you struggle with and you don't even realize that you're making money or possessions an idol that's more important even 
than God. And I know this because I've done it before. I've done it before. And we're going to take a look at interesting ways uh, that we do that in this particular message. It's interesting. The whole, the whole value of a dollar is an interesting thing if you really think about it. Um, how, I want you to like, think through this as, as we're talking here this morning. How far would a dollar get you today? I mean, would it get you out of the parking lot? Like, it probably wouldn't get you past the BP station, right? I mean, it just, like, a dollar doesn't mean much any, anymore, does it? You know, there was a day when a dollar meant everything to people, right? But a dollar doesn't have the same meaning today as it used to. Am I right? And there are studies that really um, kind of help us to understand that a dollar means something different now than it used to. I found this great website in preparation for this. And by the way, I'm going to mention several different blogs and websites. And this week, I'll post them on our blog so that you can link to them because there's really some interesting things. I came across this one that um, really kind of like gave picture in picture form the value of a dollar in different countries. And this was really interesting. And I want to share just a few of them with you. First of all, um, in Budapest, Hungary, a, a dollar's worth can buy you four apples. So, you, so a dollar will get you four apples in Budapest, uh, Hungary. Um, in France, this is an interesting one. In France, this is actually kind of my favorite one. In France, you can get 40% of a Starbucks espresso. <laughs> now, here's the deal. Like, whoever studied this had to, like, go figure that out. Like, how do you figure out that a dollar is worth 40% of an espresso, but they have a picture of it, and I'm going to trust that that's true because, you know, it's the Internet, right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> there's another one. This is great. In the Philippines, you know what a dollar will get you? A 45-minute foot massage. All right. Y'all are buying tickets to the Philippines right now, aren't you? Here in the United States, the picture that they had was the picture of a uh, parking meter, and it says it'll get you one hour of parking in the United States. Isn't that great? So if you have a dollar in your wallet or in your purse right now, you can get parking. Isn't that cool? For an hour. And then you have to leave because you'll get a ticket. So anyway, um, as we all probably have known at some point in time. And so as we talk about this, the question that I want to ask you at the beginning and the end of this message is when is it enough? Because that's really the question that we wrestle with in our consumer kind of mentality of America. And I want to preface two things this morning before we dive too far in. Because I'm going to give you some stats and we're going to be talking about different things involving money. There are two things I want to preface this morning. Number one, if you walked in here today and you're not a God follower, um, believe it or not, this is a message that like, you could probably take home and learn something from. You know, God's word has a lot to say to the Christ follower, but the principles will apply across the board. And so if you're not a God follower today, man, I want you to become a God follower. I want to see you in heaven. I want you to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. But God's word has a lot to say about just practical things in life, and a lot of today will apply. The second thing that I want to say is that in this message, you're going to be hearing some numbers that apply to those who are wealthy and those who are, are, will apply to those who are not wealthy, right here. Um, and so uh, anyway, and I, I'm not being disparaging at all for those who are in here today who are wealthy and those who are in here aren't wealthy. It's just factual, okay? So I hope that helps preface today. I read an article over the past couple weeks by a guy by the name of Andrew Latham, and it really does a great job of setting um, the tone for today's message. And I want to kind of draw three points that, that he had in his article that he had. He's a blogger uh, on a financial website. And Andrew Latham wrote this article called, How Much Money Does It Take to Be Rich? Have you ever thought about that? How much money does it take to be rich? 
I've, I've thought about it, but I've never really like investigated the answer to that. And so he wrote this very interesting article, and his findings really set the stage for us today. Consider this. He found that only 20% of people that have a net worth or assets totaling between $1 million and $5 million consider themselves wealthy. That makes me laugh a little bit, but, you know, I mean, okay, 28% of people that have between $1 million and $5 million, 28% of them don't consider themselves wealthy. Okay, that's cool. I don't understand that, but that's fine. The other thing that he found out is only three in five people with assets over $5 million consider themselves wealthy. Is that crazy? Only three in five. Two out of every five people that have assets of $5 million or more don't consider themselves wealthy. And I don't think it's because they're trying to be humble here. I think they really want more. And his article supports that finding. Listen to this, uh, what he said about how people think of wealth and, and riches and, and being wealthy. He, he, he kind of uh, generalized different categories of what people say about why, uh, how they would be wealthy or, or at what point they would be categorized as wealthy or rich. Listen to this. He, he says, my favorite definition of what someone who is rich would say would make them rich is the double what I make category. He, he says this, uh, this whole idea of doubling what I make and ascribing that to wealth or riches is something that was proposed by a guy named Robert Frank in his Wall Street Journal blog, The Wealth Report. Uh, Latham says here, I like it because it sheds light on how we use being rich as a target, a driving force, I would say a pedestal, a, a driving force that is always pursued but never quite attained. And that's the problem in our society, isn't it? That we have this idea of what wealth is, and so few of us will ever attain what that idea in our minds is. He goes on to say this. He says, the more we have, the more we want. Oh, man, you guys get it. We can just wrap it up here and go to lunch today, I think, okay? You'd be happy with that, wouldn't you? Wow. Anyway, I love it. The more we have, the more we want. So our definition increases in proportion to our current net worth. Like if I make X amount of dollars a year, I would be rich if I doubled that. Yet most people, when they get a raise, or maybe they double their income over a period of time, wouldn't consider themselves wealthy, would they? It's in interesting. It's interesting how the human mind works. Then he talks about the more we have, the more we want uh, kind of philosophy. Excuse me, the no constraints philosophy. L listen to this. He said, here's another one. The no financial constraints on activities category. Like, I would consider myself rich or wealthy if I could do whatever I wanted to do and I could pay for it. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Listen to what he says. That was half of the investors interviewed by the USB 2013 Investors Watch. Half of them surveyed when they were asked or when they were surveyed responded that that would make them wealthy. No constraints on activities. No financial constraints on activities. According to this threshold, Latham writes, if you don't do something such as buy a yacht or visit the International Space Station because you're worried about the price tag, then you're not rich. Okay. And he says this is an important point. Listen to this. Because it shows that our measure of what it takes to be rich is directly linked to this little word, contentment. 
contentment. I don't like that word. I don't like that word too much. Contentment, we're going to be talking about that. You may, he writes, you may have a million dollars in the bank, but if you dig your neighbor, neighbor's private plane and you can't afford one, you probably won't consider yourself rich. And that's the way we all operate, whether we're talking about planes or whether we're talking about cars or clothes or homes. We have this thing, especially in the United States of America, where we as consumers always want to keep up with the who? The Joneses. Sorry if you're a Jones in here. We're not trying to keep up with you. It's a phrase. It's an idiom. And so anyway, Latham highlights that. It's this more, the more we have, the more we want. The more we see what other people have, the more we want their stuff or want what they do. And we have this idea of wealth that is not based on God's word. It's based on what society says. And in doing so, we have this pedestal. If we buy into that lie, we have this pedestal of money in our lives that can have the tendency to knock God off the pedestal of our lives. And Latham's studies highlight that. I want you to take a look at your notes this morning. You guys received them when you walked in today. You're going to get them on the app uh, if you have a device that you can access an app from. The app from you can uh, take a look at your notes. We're going to discover, kind of uh, walk through three points of uh, three questions of how we can understand what God's word says about money. The first one is this What is the tension with money? Some of you are like, I can tell you what the tension is because of a conversation I had on the way to church this morning, what the tension with money is. I don't need you to define it. But I think there are kind of three ways that we as consumers have tension with money. And I want to define tension with money as this. It's the gap that exists between what we have or what we have the potential to earn and what our current situation is or our perceived current situation is, okay? I know it was a long definition. You probably didn't get it, but get the concept of it. It's the gap that exists between what we have or what we have the ability to earn and what our current situation is. I've been there. I've been there when there's a huge gap between those two things. And I would suggest to you today that there are three ways that we get into that situation. The first and foremost, quite simply, is need. Sometimes our expenses exceed our income. In fact, I think I could say it better that sometimes our needs exceed income. Because there's a difference sometimes between expenses and needs, aren't there? Like the things we want versus the things that we absolutely need. Dave Ramsey talks about it. You need food, you need shelter, you need clothing, and you need transportation. Those are needs. And sometimes our needs exceed what we can earn. I, I remember days when my needs exceeded what we earned. I remember being um, in Atlanta, Georgia. We were like in year two, and I was um, working on commission. Oh, my goodness. I had a draw, and if you have been in sales, you know what a draw is. You know what commission is. It means that you have to pay the company to a certain point back for them hiring you. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? And then everything over and above that, that's yours based on commission on your sales. I didn't have a lot of sales. I didn't have a lot of sales at all. And I remember one weekend literally looking in our car for change to buy groceries. In fact, there was more than one weekend like that when we were young. And sometimes the gap that exists between what 
is it, what our income is or what our ability to support ourselves is and our needs or what our perceived situation is or what our situation is, sometimes it's simply just need. Sometimes that's the way it is. Some of you are here today and you walked in this room and you are struggling in your financial life and it's painful and I understand that. And there's been nothing that you or someone else has done to create it. It just is what it is. And sometimes needs creates the tension with money. Sometimes that's just the way it is. Sometimes it's the second thing, negligence. <laughs> this is the point where everybody gets up and leaves, right? <laughs> sometimes it's negligence defined. I, I want to define that. It's the act of being lazy or careless with money. Dave Ramsey talks about this. He says early in his life, um, he had financial mistakes and they had way too many zeros at the end of them. And we all have made mistakes. We all have been maybe careless. We all have been maybe negligent a time or two. In America, our society is consumed with getting and not paying back. We all have been there. I I'm going to give you a few stats. And by the way, these stats, doesn't, they don't necessarily mean that there's been negligence, but it's an indicator of negligence. Listen to this. At the height of the recession in 2009, one in, 12, uh, one in 212 people declared bankruptcy in 2009 at the height of the recession. One in 212 uh, declared bankruptcy. It, it was an, at an alarming rate. N nearly 15% of people today in the U.S. are in default on their mortgage. Nearly 15% of people are in default on their mortgage. It's just an indication of, of mismanagement or, or negligence. One study in 2014, not that long ago, showed that 35% of, of Americans had debt that was in collections. And so, like, this whole idea of negligence is sometimes why there's a gap between what we have or what we can earn in our current situation. Sometimes it's need, sometimes it's negligence. And thirdly, sometimes it's excess. Sometimes it's just this desire to have more, and you have more, and you have more, and you want more, and you want more, and you have more, and you want more. And all of a sudden, you wake up one day, and all of a sudden, what you're able to earn or what you have exceeds but you need to cover it. And sometimes this idea of striving for abundance or what I read somewhere is called super abundance bumps God off the pedestal of our lives. And so there's need, there's negligence, and then there's excess. Well, let's take a look at what we can do, what you and I can do to ensure or to be careful that we don't put money on the pedestal of our lives. Let me also say this. Sometimes this doesn't have to do with the want of stuff or the, the desire for stuff. Sometimes it has to do, for some of you, this has to do with your obsession with money. There was a day and an age in, in my life when I literally would, my palms would break out with sweat. When I looked at our bank account, I was worried about money. Because worry about something is an indication that it's on the pedestal of our lives. I've been there. I understand that. And for each of you, it's relative. For each of you, it's a different story, and I understand that. And at the end, I want to pray for you. I get it. I totally understand that. Because sometimes being worried about your situation makes it the thing that's on the pedestal of your lives. Take a look at point number two this morning. Take a look at point number two. Why is there tension with money? I want you to take a look. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
We're going to be in, in verses 1 through 10 and then 17 through 19 as we look at these last two points that I hope will really help us understand that money doesn't have to be on the pedestal of our lives, that we don't have to have this up there. It can be God. Take a look at what Paul says to Timothy, and I'm going to read the first three verses for context because we're going to get done, and you're going to be like, how does that have to do with money? It'll give you context. Take a look at this. He's been talking about slavery in this particular book, and he says this, verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. He's talking about Christian brotherhood there. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefited by their good service are believers and beloved. And then he says, teach and urge these things. And then we take a look at verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction, verse 5 says, among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Okay, now so far I've read this, and I know you're like, what is he doing here? He read the wrong verse. Maybe it's 2 Timothy that he meant to read. And so you're like, what does this have to do with money? Well, it sets the stage for the relationship between us and money. Get this. What Paul's telling Timothy is he's been talking about slavery. He's talking about being under the yoke of slavery. As he's talked about this whole idea of servant and master, he's relating this to several different things, and he begins right now as we dive into verse 6 to relate money to slavery because you and I are in a relationship with money. Either we are the master of money and the money's a slave, or the money is the master and we are the slave. Are you with me of what he's trying to do? He's trying to create a picture, a bleak picture, one that we don't like in our culture, one that we abhor in our culture, but that's the way that it is, isn't it? That's the way that it is with money. It either owns us or we own it, as Dave Ramsey says. And so he's creating this picture. Now we can take a look at verse 6. But godliness with, say that next word with me. Uh, let's say it like you mean it. Okay, godliness with what? Contentment, all right, there we go, that's awesome, is great, now let's say this other word, because we like this word, ready? Gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain, we'll come back to that in a minute. For we brought nothing out of the world, or excuse me, we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be, say it again, content. With these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, this is a very interesting passage, and he draws about several different things. Um, there's a couple words that I want to define, and if you're someone that really likes uh, biblical uh, you know, knowledge and that sort of thing for practical sake, there, there's a couple words that are, are important here. The first one is gain. The Greek word that's used, the word that Paul used in that instance is a word that literally means the ability to collect money for yourself. It's, an, it's a means to an ends. 
Okay, so it's not money itself, but it's like the ability to do that, right? Okay, so that's what he's talking is he's talking that's what he's talking about. He's talking about people who desire gain for themselves. And that's where I want to draw a distinction. It is what Paul is talking about here is he is talking about those who want selfish gain. They want it for themselves. They want to hoard it. They want to keep it. And guess what happens when they die? Nothing. Nothing. You know how much it helps them when they die? Not at all. Except perhaps they prepared something for their family, which is a biblical ideal. So this whole idea of gain is a means to an end, a way to gain for themselves. The second word is, is content. And I love this definition. Parents, you can use this tomorrow. You can use it today. I love this definition. Content here literally means satisfaction with your situation. Isn't that awesome? Satisfaction with your situation. So when you tell your teenager to be content, you're telling them, him or her, to have satisfaction with your current situation. But we have trouble with this when it comes to money, don't we, as adults? The other word is desire, and that is a persistent will or delight in something. This striving, and I think he even says striving there, uh, uh, craving in, in verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kind of evil. It is through this craving. You understand that what he's talking about there with desire and craving is this strong, over and over again, pursuit of money. It's a very strong thing. And the word rich there comes from a word that we have in our language that we use called plateau. And it means to go over the plateau. Isn't that interesting? That that's the word he used. So he's creating this picture of wealth and wealthy people that have this obsession to have great gain. And, and, and what he's trying to tell Timothy and what he's trying to tell us is this. Here's the two lessons real quick and under point number two. Because the love of money uh, leads to spiritual harm. The question is, is really why is there tension with money? And spiritually, it's because the love of money leads to spiritual harm in two different ways. Two different ways he points out here. The first is that it leads to spiritual harm when you and I leverage our goodness for the purpose of financial gain. You ever know anybody who's really like leveraged their goodness for the purpose of financial gain? People do it all the time. They, they use goodness as, as a license to, to have gain in someone else's life. Um, sometimes we wrongly think that righteousness is automatically linked with riches here on this earth. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that we should store up treasures for ourselves. Where? In heaven. The Bible says, God's word says, that we should not store up for ourselves treasures here, that we should be thinking about treasures that we store up in heaven. And that relates to the end of the message that we'll get to in a moment. You see, there's a whole group of people that buy into this idea. It's called health, wealth, prosperity. Like if I do the right thing and if I say the right thing and if I pursue the right thing, God will give me riches. And I don't see anywhere in Scripture where that is laid out. In fact, I see this instruction from Paul to his protege, young Timothy, saying, preach against this. There's a group of people out there that believe that they will become rich because of their goodness. 
And you and I say, oh, we're not like that. But, you know, in some ways we are. In some ways we kind of buy into that as well. We, we kind of buy into that in terms that we think if we live a clean life that God will grant us good things. If we do certain things that God will grant us riches and wealth. The only thing that God says in Malachi 3 verse 10 is he says, if you bring a tithe to the storehouse, my church, I will take care of your needs. Now, I'm not saying, please don't hear me saying that we shouldn't have faith and belief in God to provide. God will provide, period, because he's the God of provision. But I believe having faith when money's involved and believing that God will provide is God's ability to provide plus our obedience on the matter. I believe that's when God will take care of our needs. And so sometimes people leverage their goodness for the purpose of financial gain. Be careful not to buy into that. and Be careful not to slip into it yourselves. Secondly, it's when we don't understand the difference between money and the love of money. Did you catch that in verse 10? What does he say? For the what of money? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. See, sometimes people will read this and they'll go to the other extreme and they'll say, well, money is evil. That's not what it says, does it? <laughs> We're misquoting the word of God when we say that. Money is okay. Money is good. It buys us the necessities of life. Money is a good thing. It's okay to say that. Do you want to say it with me this morning? Money is good. You want to say it? Money is good. It's okay. All right? The love of money is what Paul is speaking against to Timothy. And it's what he wants us to be careful in. In, in our affluent society, we have to be very careful not to mix the, the difference and, and confuse the difference between money and the love of money because we will look like hypocrites if we do will look inconsistent which we do, which if we do. And so one of the problems that we have when it comes to money is wrong thinking. But what do we do about it? How do we take money off the pedestal so that we have room for God on the pedestal? Take a look at point number three as we look at the end of 1 Timothy 6. Take a look at this. How do we remove money from the pedestal of our lives? Look at verses 17 through 19 of chapter 6. Paul says this to young Timothy. He's preparing him for the ministry, and he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That's a strong word. That's like saying arrogant or prideful or overly prideful. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. We all learned that lesson in the recession, didn't we? <laughs> not to put our hope in the uncertainty of riches. We all learned it to one extent or the other. But on God, on him, put your hope on him. Because he richly provides for us with everything to, what's that other word? Enjoy. We're going to talk about enjoyment next week. With everything to enjoy. Verse 18. They are, those who are rich, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take, they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, lest some of you who are struggling financially think that you are not in the category of rich as Paul defines it here. Let me point out that you are, if you are in this room, you are rich. Here's what I want to point out. In America, in the United States of America, the average U.S. household income is $50,000 a year. 
at $50,000 a year, if you earn $50,000 a year, you are in the top 0.31% of wealth earners in the world. Think about that. The top 0.31. I'm not a math guy, man. I can't understand that. But I will say this. If I lose a race by 0.31, I'm like, I should have won, right? I mean, that's not, that's not even like second place, really. I mean, it is. But like it's not, right? <laughs> that's the extent to which you and I are wealthy. In Beaufort County, the average earner earns uh, household income is $57,000. That's the top 0.22% of wealth earners in the world. On Hilton Head Island, it's $70,000. That's in the top 0.13%. The worldwide household average income is $10,000 a year. It's actually a little bit less than that. And even if you earn $10,000 a year, you're in the top 16%. That was like where I was in my grade point average in class. I was pretty happy with that, okay? I'm just kidding. I was a little higher than that. If you earn $5,000 a year, which in our society would, you know, be at the poverty level or way below it, um, if you earn $5,000 a year, you're in the top quarter percent of earners in the world. Church in America, we're rich, aren't we? We're rich. We just have a skewed view of what those riches are. And I think if we can change our thinking, if we can change the way that we think about money, I think that we can change maybe what God will do with us and money. Paul lays it out here. He gives us four simple ways to change how we think about money. Take a look at this. Listen to this. The first thing he talks to us about is contentment. Oh, man, I don't like that word. I I don't like that word. It's just not comfortable, is it? I mean, let's face it. Like, we always want more. We want to strive for more. We want more. We want, we want to be better. We want to do this and do that. We, we don't like to be content. That's the whole point of this message. If we were content all the time, this would not be on our pedestal. And so contentment is something that is difficult for us to find. But I want you to think about a time when you were really, truly content with little. I remember a time. You know when I was content with little? It was when Cynthia and I were searching for money in the backseat of our car. That period of time as newlyweds, and that probably had something to do with it, as newlyweds, we were content. We had nothing. We had nothing. We were content. And I bet if you think there was a time in your life when you were content with little as well. The second thing is is doing good, and I'm summarizing here verse 18 when he says they are to do good and to be rich in good works, kind of the same concept. We are to do good. If we're content with our money, if we do good with our money, the, the phrase in terms of do good there literally means to act in a good manner towards someone. Don't do evil, but do something good with your money. If we do that, if we find ways to bless other people, then I think we will change the way that we think about money in this relationship that we have with money. Be generous. By the way, the first one drives at our heart, doesn't it? In terms of being content, like that's just a heart issue. We talked last week about our head puts things on this pedestal, our heart puts things on this pedestal, and our hands put things on this pedestal. That first one, being content, drives at maybe our head a little bit, but but our hearts as well. Uh, The second one drives at our hands, doing good. Being generous is the third one. Be generous. Literally, He's talking about being generous in giving in in that particular passage right there. And this drives that motive or attitude or heart, once again, it's a heart issue. 
It's having a life defined by being a generous person. That's what Paul's driving at, and it drives in terms of our money. And then the last thing is plan to share. Be ready to share. It literally means to give plan. It literally means to give planning to doing good. That's what it literally means in the original language. You see, God wants us to plan to do good. (laughs) But so often, we don't even plan to do with what he's given us, so there's nothing left to do good, is there? He wants us to plan to do good. And so this whole series, or this whole, whole message today, drives at the point is, when is it enough? When is it enough? We put this on the pedestal of our lives because we don't understand when enough is enough. I'm going to have our hospitality team pass an envelope to each and every one of you. I'm going to ask that each of you take this envelope and hold on to it. And in just a moment, we're going to all open it at the same time. Well, you guys are. I don't have one. But you guys are going to all open this envelope right at the same time. We began today by talking about how far will $1 get you. How far in life will $1 get you? Let me tell you something. That weekend that Cynthia and I were looking for change under the back seats of our Jeep, a dollar would have gotten us pretty far back in 1998. It would have gotten us pretty far. In today's day and age, it doesn't get us very far. But I would suggest to you today that if you're a Christ follower here, and if you believe the word of God to be true, that our thinking about how far any amount of money will take us is skewed when we don't put Jesus on the pedestal of our lives, when we don't take his word and make it our anchor for everything that we do. You see, if we learn what it means to be content with a dollar, if we learn to do good with a dollar, if we learn to be generous with a dollar, And if we learn to plan to share that dollar, then all of a sudden, every dollar that we have is much more meaningful, isn't it? Okay, most of you have received that envelope. Go ahead and open it up right now. You guys can go ahead and open that up. So you came to church today, and usually in church they talk about, they ask for money. (laughs) Today you got a dollar, okay. We'll ask for money later. That's coming. I tr- trust me, okay? It's still church. <laughs> and I'm still a pastor. But I want you to do something for me this week. And I want to see how this goes. This is a, this is a, we're doing a little church experiment here, okay? This is Hilton Head Island Community Church church experiment. I want to see what happens when you and I change our thinking about $1. I'm going to challenge you this week to take that dollar and to do those four things with it. I want you to find contentment with that dollar. I want you to find a way to do good with that dollar. I want you to find a way to be generous with that dollar. I want you to find a way then to plan to share that dollar. Parents, we're really good about talking to our kids about sharing. But when it comes to money, man, we're the worst at it, aren't we? And so my challenge to you is to take that dollar this week and find ways to do those four things. Maybe some of you are just going to take one of those things and do one of those things with it. Maybe you're going to take a quarter and you're going to split it up and you're going to take a quarter and you're going to try to do those four things with that dollar. My prayer is and my belief and my hope is, 
is that God would help you in that to change the way that you think about money. And listen, I need this as much as you do. I'm preaching to the choir to a certain extent. I cannot tell you how much conviction I've come under this week preparing for this message. But you know what? God told me to get up here and talk about it, so that's what I'm going to do. And I want to challenge you to take that dollar and to do those four things that Paul lays out for Timothy. And I want you to let me know how that went. Online, uh, we put a, uh, a page on our website. It's hiltonheadislandcc.org slash pedestal. And I want you to share your story of what you did with your dollar. Be honest with me. I mean, if you went out and, you, you know, you, you bought a candy bar with it, just tell me. That's, that's cool. Maybe you found contentment in that candy bar. That's fine. <laughs> I'm not doing the other three. No way. If you split it up into quarters, maybe you invest a quarter, literally. Tell me about it. If you helped someone with a quarter, if you did something for your family, tell me about it. I'd love to see how we can change the way that we think about money because we have to ask ourselves the question, when is it enough? Father God, thank you so much for your word. And God, I thank you that your word is so practical. God, it's living and it's breathing and it has to do with eternity and our everyday life. And God, I just want to stop for a moment and pray for those who are in this room and they've walked in here today and they're financial situation um, is depressing or their perceived financial situation is depressing or their needs are overwhelming Holy Spirit I pray that you would give them comfort God that you would give them peace but God that you would also help each one of us in this room to understand that when it comes to money and when it become when it comes to being rich our purpose in life is not to put riches on the pedestal. It's to put you on the pedestal. And when we do that, the Matthew, the gospel of Matthew says, then all these things will be added unto you. God, help us this week to understand the idea that you can provide for us enough when we follow in obedience to your word. That's faith. God, may we take steps in our lives to make money the slave. May we be the master of what you've given us. And God, may you use it for your glory. Help us, Father God, to follow your lead, to be content, even with a dollar, to find ways to do good, even with a dollar, to be generous, even with a dollar. And God, I pray that you would help us to find out what it means to plan to share what you have given us. Guide us in this. Help us to remove money from the pedestal of our lives, whether it's worry or whether it's obsession with stuff and money. God, I pray that you would do a work in our lives so that then we can give back to you a wonderful offering. In Jesus' name, I pray.